Yo, yo, this is Peter J. Kim on the Food 52 Podcast Network, coming at you with Season 4 of Counter Jam, the show that celebrates culture through food and music. You know, it's fitting that this is a new beginning for Counter Jam because we are celebrating Nowruz, the Persian New Year, with three wonderful Iranian-American guests. Emmy Award-winning actress Shoreh Agdashlu, top chef judge and former food and wine editor-in-chief Nilu Motamid, and Yvette Masudi, the singer and founder of the band Mitra Sumara. In her music, Yvette belts out classics from 1970s Tehran, a time and place where cultures collided and groovy music prevailed. We'll get into all that in this episode. This song is called Helel Yos. It's a Bandare song, which is the style of music found in the south of Iran. It's got hip-shaking, hypnotic rhythms and the almost chant-like refrain, Helel Yosa. Yvette explained what that means. Hello Yosa is means, you know, our people are dancing. It's a party song and it's a celebration of the people of the South who are darker. And, you know, most of this song is about, you know, we're black and we're happy and we're partying and we're fearless and our women are hot. I mean, that's really what the song is about. That's the first that's the first part of the song. And then the second part is, why are you getting married? <laughs> this is terrible. You're going to put yourself in prison. You know, it's a real party song. So get down to Halelios by Mitra Sumara. That was Halelios by Mitra Sumara. So let me first start by wishing our Persian listeners Nowruz Mubarak, or Happy New Year. Now for many of us, it seems counterintuitive to say Happy New Year in March. That's because the vast majority of cultures around the world celebrate New Year on January 1st. Well, one might ask, why January 1st? Well, in short, it's because Julius Caesar said so. The month of January was named after the Roman god Janus. Janus was the god of doors, and he had two faces, one looking back and one looking ahead. So our friend Jules thought, hey, this makes sense. Let's make the new year start here. Persians time things a bit differently, and as Nilu Motamid pointed out, they feel pretty good about it. So we always, as Iranians, I think we all talk amongst ourselves um, and say, why is it that American New Year is in the middle of the winter? That doesn't make any sense. You know, we all pat ourselves on the back about how smart we are and how our Nowruz, our, our, new, our new day, happens on the first day of spring. And that feels um, very right. It feels like the crocuses are, are coming out, the birds are chirping, and we're starting afresh. A and all of the symbolism that I was just talking about is about this um, reboot and this opportunity for good things to come ahead. Yeah, I mean, 100%, if I could rewrite how the world generally 
uh, Iran and a couple other cultures accepted does the new year. It just, you're right. It doesn't make any sense that you're like new year, new beginnings, new me. And then you like open, you know, open up the shades the next day and it's a blizzard yeah. and it's freezing yeah. and there's no lights. <laughs> it's just like not the best time for a renewal. However, for all its advantages as a more sensible time to celebrate renewal, it does come with some downsides. Shore Agdashlu explained. Nowruz is the first day of the spring. No is new. Ruz is day. It's simply called a new day, the first day of the spring. It takes place at the time of the equinox. And sometimes it's like 4, 4 a.m. Sometimes it's 10.30 p.m., 7 a.m. Depends on when I remember when mm. we were children, my brothers and I, I have three brothers. We were all like, now we have to wake up at 2 a.m. and celebrate this at 3.10 p.m. But this is what it is. We had to wear, uh, no, no matter who you are, you have to wear new uh, clothes, outfits, when you're at the table waiting for the equinox to take place. And it's, it's in, usually, it's cold, it's in the winter. The first day of the spring is still cold. Right. And you have to wear, um, you know, sort of wool or new shoes. Imagine, you're wearing 4 a.m., you're wearing a polar neck, wool polar neck, <laughs> and a pair of new shoes that you haven't broken yet. And you walk like... And you sit on the table and it starts itching you. <laughs> Ma, can I, can I change it now? Ma, can I? She goes, nah, not until, not until the equinox. Wait, wait. And then we all start 10, 9, the moment say, one, happy new year, happy new year. And we all go all change because there's a new way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so no rules in Iran. My takeaway is no rules in Iran starts with wearing very uncomfortable clothes and uncomfortable <laughs> shoes. Okay, <laughs> noted. Okay, so of course. <laughs> uh, yes, of course. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Itchy sweaters aside, how do Persians celebrate no rules? I asked Nilu how she was preparing for the holiday. We talked about that with just a small detour toward rice. What it entails is a lot of ritual that I I kind of feel like is a little bit pagan and it really goes back, it predates even Zoroastrianism. And it uh, you create an altar that is called a hafzin, which means uh, seven things that start with S. And the hafzin is something that you keep up for two whole weeks. So imagine a holiday, I mean, we all know about Christmas and we all know about Thanksgiving and this is the Super Bowl of all holidays for Persian uh, people, for not just Iranians, but for anyone who celebrates Nowruz, a much broader swath of people in the Middle East. And we celebrate for two weeks straight. So for two weeks straight, kids are off school and everybody um, is visiting each other and basically checking out each other's um, have seen. And Iranians are a lot of things, including a tiny bit competitive about the aesthetics of what they put together. <laughs> and so there's lots of there's lots of uh, visits, uh, constant back and forth of visits, lots of drinking tea, lots of um, pastries being served and lots of meals with family. So to answer your question, because, God, you asked me one question and I answered with 15 answers. <laughs> one of the very crucial elements of the have seen is your sabze, which is this um, 
green sprouts that you start from nothing. And so in terms of rebirth, you are creating, you take lentils or you take, um, you take uh, wheat and, and then you basically sprout it and then you grow it into grass. So you create, create wheat grass. And so that happens now because it's uh, the holidays in less than two weeks. And so I've started soaking my my lentils and um and it's very painstaking and you never know especially when it's cloudy outside whether your greens are going to come up and uh it's kind of super important and you also need to keep them for two weeks and at the end of the two weeks there um there is a traditional picnic that you go on and you tie the a knot in um in the sabze and you make a wish and then you throw the sabze into running water as a wish for your coming year. So there's a lot of pressure on this green uh-huh. stuff and um, I'm, I'm already on it. I'm on the case. Yeah. So you're just sitting there watching the lentils, waiting for them to sprout. It's a, it's a whole thing. It's very stressful. I, you know, <laughs> I, I think Iranians have like a kind of an interesting masochism because we're the same with our with our rice. You know, we make this rice, the, the crunchy rice, the tadig, which has kind of become a phenomenon on Instagram. And it's all about this wait and see. You have no idea what's going to happen. You hope for the best. And then there's this moment very dramatically where you have to flip the rice out. And if it's burnt, it's burnt. And so there's um, a lot of a lot of pressure on on the on the on the Iranian people <laughs> when it comes to things culinary and tradition. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to return to the half scene. But while, since you're talking about the rice, um, I do want to zoom in on that. I was commenting to somebody else, a Persian friend of mine, that, you know, Koreans, when we get our rice out, we open the rice cooker, we take a paddle, we like scoop out the rice, it goes in the bowl. Maybe we do a dulcet and we put it in a hot stone bowl and it gets crispy on the bottom. Nice, but there's crispy. nothing, there's no like drum roll and like reveal. Whereas with like <laughs> Persians, it's like take this giant, extremely heavy pot, invert it over a plate. And then like, you know, this whole like mysterious unveiling Um feels like uh, there's a, there's a certain showmanship to it that uh, happens at like so many meals. So welcome to welcome to Iranian life. It's all about it's all about the tada. We definitely have a lot of showmanship in, built into our culture. We also have a lot of hospitality built in. So I think those two things intersect and then you get tadig basically. Um, we love crunch. Texture is really important in Persian food. And so this little crust from the rice. And if you've never had tadig, let me try to explain what it is. So what we do is we boil rice until it's al dente in salted water, and then we drain it. And then we create this beautiful bed of, um, depending on the kind of uh, tadig you're making, the kind of crunchy rice you're making, it could be potatoes, it could be saffron and oil, it could be um, an egg base and with, with yogurt. And then we create this base for the tadig, and then we layer in these perfectly long grains of basmati rice, and then we steam the whole thing, but because there's oil and fat at the bottom of the pot, it cooks and gets crunchy at the bottom. Now, this is the challenge. It has to cook for 30 or so minutes, and during that time, you can't scorch the bottom. But as we all know, when you have something that is oily, or if you have an egg base at the bottom, or yogurt, for God's sakes, obviously, it's going to get scorched. And so there's this whole this whole dance that you do. There's this thing you do where um, traditionally you lick the tip of your finger and then you tap it against the pan. And if it if there's a sizzle, you know that the um, the tadik has moved <laughs> away from the edge. I mean, it's it's almost it's it's practically like voodoo. I mean, I don't know, but what you yeah. end up with is 
as you said, <laughs> this, I don't know, five pound pot of rice that you then have to invert dramatically in front of your guests um, for dinner. And if it's bad, you're kind of stuck with it. So, um, yes. you know, zero pressure, zero pressure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's right. Oh, I mean, talk about masochism. Oh, take your finger and then see if it sizzles when you tap yeah, it against the, the I, pot. <laughs> I know it's very weird, but I, I mean, I, we all do it. And if you go into anyone's house, no one will actually say that they do it. But then there's this thing you do where, and I'm doing it right now. Stick your finger in, tap yeah. it against the edge of the of the pot. And then that's how you know that, that those tadig is ready. Of course, the right. smell is, is also it's the whole house smells like popcorn, which is, you know, basically heaven. And then, of course, hopefully it ends with this, uh, shall I say, tadig tada. Um, <laughs> but it is a lot of pressure. And I, I have to say, actually, so Nilu, last weekend I made Persian style rice and I had my kid, my Felix, um, who is almost four years old. And I was like, hey, Appa's making something special. It's going to be this amazing rice and it's going to be just what you love because he loves crispy rice. Right. And so I did the thing where I had the pot and I put the plate over it and I proudly lifted it up. And I can I think, you know, where this is going. And I inverted it and I was like, see what up I made. <laughs> and then I lift up the pot and it's just these like moist grains of rice that kind of come tumbling mm. out. And I'm like shaking the pot. Stop. Nothing comes out. And I like flip it back over and there it is. And then I have to go get the the spatula and i'm just like doing the thing where i'm scraping every last bit of uh of crispy rice off and then i sprinkle it on top and it's still yummy yes but then like this moment that should have been this like baba is now this like extended period where i'm like cursing under my breath and my kids basically just disappointed in his dad the fact that you tried to do it for the first time ever um i'm super impressed that you even got it out uh, i'm gonna tell you tom colicchio um wanted to make Tadig and we were we were hosting a, a lunch together for actually for Top Chef and he decided that at craft uh -huh. he was gonna make Tadig and he wouldn't listen to me because he's Tom Clicchio and he knows everything, which I think he does most things in the kitchen. Um Indeed. he wouldn't listen to me about the fact that he needed to use a, a kind of a cheap nonstick pot. Like he wanted to use something cast yeah. iron and amazing. And I said, I please listen, you this is what you need to use. And so fast forward, he made it and fast forward, he did the exact same thing you did. And there was some sticking and there was some cursing and it was taste, tasted great though. Taste, I mean, you can't go wrong. It's, it's beautiful basmati rice that's steamed and fluffy and butter and saffron. Right. I mean, you're winning regardless. And I have to say, I, I think I have a proclivity toward cultures that celebrate crunchy rice. So I'm obsessed with Korean food. Yeah. If you can have sokora, you know, and paella, anyone who oh, yeah. has a crunchy rice phenomenon happening, I'm I'm there for their cooking. Iranians do a crazy thing though. We make pasta tadig too, because we uh -huh. are like, bake ziti, why not make it crunchy? So we make, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's just like, we, we, we're like, it's like the Windex for the big fat Creek wedding. We're just like, let's make it crunchy. It's better that way. And so for <laughs> we'll make like a like a cooked pasta and then cook it slow, um, low and slow on on um, on the stovetop. And then it gets a crunchy tadig. So that's another that's another thing that we're little kids are obsessed with. Your son might be into that, too. Uh, I love the idea of taking this to the extreme. And it's like. Oh, let me make my oatmeal crunchy on the bottom. What happens <laughs> if I do my quinoa and like get that crunchy on the bottom? 
I bet you would be good. I, I bet you it would be good. Uh, so, I, I, yeah, you know, I, I, th- I had thought about going to the nonstick pot, but I actually thought in my head, so I used a, I used one of these uh, enameled cast iron, you know, Le Creuset pots. And beautiful, beautiful pot, but not for that. <laughs> but then I thought to myself, Persian grandmas, you know, like they didn't necessarily have nonstick pots. So I should be able to be a foolishly a Persian grandma and make Tadig without a nonstick pot. And, and there, there lie, there lay my, my folly. Have you by any chance been talking to Tom Colicchio? Because that's exactly what he said. He said Persian grandmas <laughs> didn't have nonstick pots. And I was like, I can't tell you as long as I've been alive, which is a long time. Um, yeah. We have been toting around this terrible to the point where I'm, I'm superstitious. I bought a new one recently after a lot of conversation with all of my Instagram Persian friends, you know, the the food community on Instagram, which is a, a, such a gift. I reached out to Najmiya Batmangilij, who is the OG um, food goddess when it comes to Persian food. I DM'd her just casually and I was like, hi, I love you. Also, what pot do you use for your rice? And then she told me what I, she used and I bought it. And I was so nervous because uh, the one that I had was practically dangerous. You know, it, it had lost a little bit of the, the the covering. It probably wasn't healthy any longer, but my rice came out perfectly. And uh, I just snapped enthusiastically because that's what Iranians do. When your rice is, is on fire, you don't want to mess with it. So, but now Najmi's pot is my new pot and it works. It works great. But yeah, so if anyone is listening and wants to make tadig, um, I've actually posted a bunch about it on IG, but there's lots and lots of places you can go to watch videos. The key is the right amount of lubricant, which is oil, and don't be afraid of that because otherwise the rice doesn't get crunchy. And honestly, the cheapest nonstick Dutch oven that you can get. That's, don't (laughs) try it. And use your Le Creuset (laughs) for all the things. Use your Maiden and your Le Creuset and your, you know, all home pans, all those beautiful pans, however you want, but not for this. (laughs) The the soul of Persian cooking lies in cheap Teflon. (laughs) (laughs) What can I say? What can I say? That's what what we use. In fact, actually in Iran, um, they use, it's amazing. I love to watch videos of cooking in the villages in Iran. And there's so much of that now, which is so fun um, on, on social media. And they use just like a giant tin pot. Like it has nothing, it has no covering, but that is what they steam the rice. And then when they make something for the crunchy part, they use something nonstick. I don't think Shore would have appreciated my Tadik failure. Peter. That's the most important part of saving the rice. You don't know how to do it, how to flip it, you know, uh, and, and bring it to the, to the souffle or to the table. You're not a cook. It has to come right. in one piece. In case you haven't picked this up yet, rice is incredibly important to Persian cuisine. Far from being an accompaniment, it is the star of the table. Peter, you'd be surprised if I tell you that uh, I have so far gathered more than 30 recipes uh, of how to make rice. Wow. More than 30 recipes. Mixtures oh of unbelievable rice and and uh, uh, raisin and saffron and uh, uh, dates, rice and vegetables, rice and legume, rice and saffron and pistachio and almond. And there's this one. 
It has its plain rice covered with zafir rice, covered yeah. with a saute of uh, almond, pistachio, ra- uh, raisin, and you just pour it on top. They call it uh, murasa polo, which means jeweled mm. rice. Jeweled oh. rice. Wow. It's delicious. Shora does not just talk the Tadig talk, she knows how to walk the Tadig walk. Right at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, Shore did a few episodes of a home cooking show on Facebook called Cooking with Shore. Each episode ends with Shore holding a pot of rice with a plate inverted over it with a casual smile. She flips the pot over and outslides this perfectly crunchy tadig. Easy peasy. But for all the playful swagger, there's a sense in each video that even she is surprised by how it comes out. Like a little rice miracle. There's one other part of the show that I just had to ask her about. I'd also like to say there's one thing I noticed in one episode that really blew my mind. <laughs> it was how you cracked your eggs. <laughs> you just hold the egg over the pot yeah. and open the egg. There's no tapping of the egg on the countertop. And I'm wondering, where did you get where that? First of all, I just tried doing that today and it, it failed miserably. Uh, but how did, how did you learn to do that? I, I must have been doing this for a long time. And I tell you what the reason is behind it, because grandma said uh, hitting it uh, or tapping it, you know, at, at, at the pot is, is no, no good almond. You need to, oh. yeah, because you are dealing with, still dealing with a uh, live uh, being. It's still alive. Right. Don't tap it. It gets sucked. <laughs> so this is something your grandma did that's right yes <laughs> just a little bit of pressure wow. it will crack and then you can open it up but you should be wow. very gentle because still you're dealing with a live being inside when I tried it earlier today it just exploded in my hand and then I was like <laughs> you know screw this I'm gonna like do it the way I, I know. know it takes I'm boasting now but it it took me a couple of weeks to get, yeah. yeah. Sometimes I was like, well, nobody, nobody's here. Grandma is not here. Let me do it. But then I was thinking, oh, yeah. oh boy, it's not a good almond. Nah, I shouldn't do that. <laughs> this reflects something I've noticed about Persian culture. There is a certain mysticism that runs through it. And this brings us back to Nowruz, specifically one cornerstone of the holiday, the Haftzin, which, as you may remember, Nilu explained earlier, literally means the seven S's. It's an altar. You set it up. And what it really signifies is all the things that you sort of want for the coming year. So you start with the sabze, which is the sprouted wheat or barley or lentils. There is samanu, which is um, a pudding that's made out of wheat germ. It looks like a brown, like during pandemic, actually, I didn't have any samanu, so I put um, applesauce because I was in lockdown and didn't have any, but that signifies affluence. Seke, which is the gold coins, um, and that's for prosperity. Senjid, which is oleaster flour, and that's for love. Serke, uh, which is vinegar for age and patience. Seeb, which is apple for health and beauty, a big uh, beauty, all about Iranians and beauty. Seer, um, which is garlic for medicine. Somach, which is sumac, and that's for the sunrise. And then sombol, which is hyacinth, and that's for spring. And then you layer in things like candles, and that is for enlightenment, pastries for sweetness, 
uh, a mirror, a book of poetry. I like Hafiz, so that's what I put in. You do decorated eggs, like almost like Easter eggs, and that's for fertility. You can um, add in wild rue, which we um, kind of like saging. We burn it to ward off evil spirits. We care a lot about the evil eye. We spend a lot of time warding off the evil eye, especially parents for their children. There's a lot of constantly smudging and making sure that they're safe. And then I always add in, you know, uh, photos of family who aren't with me because um, family is just so important. I've come to find the concept of the half scene to be quite beautiful. I like the idea of taking the time once a year to assemble objects that both symbolize hope for the future and connections with the past. I asked our musical guest, Yvette Masudi, if she had her own special addition to the half scene. Well, one of the things that I usually like to do that I haven't done in a while, actually, and I was planning on doing it this year, is is a, a bowl of water with an orange in it to symbolize the earth and space. I yeah. Love that. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. Now here's another song from Yvette's band called Musa Megol. Appropriately enough, it's Nauru's themed. Musa Megol uh, in English means a season of flowers. It's essentially about um, how the springtime is coming, the flowers are coming up and they're beautiful, they're beautiful people, beautiful faces everywhere. But the flowers have a complaint that the nightingale is not faithful as it goes from flower to flower to <laughs> to to drink the nectar. And <laughs> and you know, and it's basically a metaphor for, you know, everybody's very, you know, uh, you know, the, it's a song of infidelity in a loose sense, in a, in, a play, in a more playful sense, shall we say. So, yeah, and we just gave it a nice rock beat to it. Here's Moza Megol by Mitra Sumara. Next, we'll take a look at the food and music of pre-revolution Iran. After this. Both Shoreh and Nilu were born in Iran and left during the Iranian Revolution in 1978 and 1979. For almost all Iranians, especially those who were born before the revolution, this event was a seismic cultural shift. Now, if you're not familiar with the background to the Iranian Revolution, here is the Cliff Notes version. 
1951, Mohammad Mossadegh became the Prime Minister of Iran. He moved to nationalize Iranian oil so profits from the oil would stay in the country rather than flowing to the West. In 1953, the American CIA and British MI6 orchestrated a coup d'etat that removed him from power and handed power to Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. The Shah was a divisive figure. For some, he was a modernizing force with an ambitious domestic development program. For others, he was a repressive autocrat and a puppet of the West. Simmering discontent with the Shah built up in 1978 and boiled over in 1979 when he was overthrown in a revolution that led to a theocracy led by Ayatollah Khomeini. Iran went from pro-West to anti-West and from secular to religious state. One unfortunate consequence of this is that many Americans have come to view Iranians with a certain amount of prejudice. You might notice that we use the words Iranian and Persian interchangeably in this episode. Well, it's important to consider this history to understand the choice of words. Here's what Shora had to say about it. It's interesting. Somebody asked me, why some Iranians say that I'm Persian? They refuse to say they're Iranians. And I said, for one you know, obvious reason, when we say I'm from Persia, I remind you from Shahrazad, 1001 Night and Stories and the Beauty of the East. Right. But when I say I'm from Iran, with what is in your subliminal and in, you know, you're consciously aware of through media and news right. and stuff, you immediately think of Nesta Espinaz and terrorism. That's why. Nilu talked about how she was perceived and how she perceived herself when she came to the U.S. When I was a little younger and had newly moved to the States, I think um, I was trying to assimilate so hard that I probably stayed away from talking about my culture so much. But as I've had the opportunity to explain a little bit more about um, uh, Iranian traditions and Iranian cultures, I find myself more and more uh, taking a minute out of whatever story I'm telling to kind of expound maybe too much about how how things are done in Iran. Because just like with every other conflict, there's been a way in which Iranians have been painted that is kind of mixing the people with with the government. And I think it's really important to, to separate those two things. And so many Persians in the U.S. seem to have a certain longing for their homeland of the past. There's no question that our cultural touch points and then very much the food have become the threads that keep us connected to, to a place that a lot of us don't get to go back to. There's a phrase in Farsi um, that's very beautiful called it doesn't have a translation. Qam means sadness and sorrow. Qorbat means foreign. And so there's this sense of uh, longing, of not belonging, of, of homesickness. And that is a thread that um, if you listen to Persian music, man, it is all about this loss. For Shore, carrying these traditions forward in the U.S. is crucial. I think it's imperative for us immigrants, first generation, to keep celebrating our culture and presenting it to the host as a gift, not shoving it down people's throats, like, this is my culture and I do this because, but <laughs> celebrated ourselves, respected ourselves, because that gives us a little bit, makes us a little bit more multi-layered, like yeah. knowing that, how to celebrate 
uh, equinox, how to celebrate uh, springs, how to be kind to autumn, how to be careful in the in the winter. Um, the, the sayings we have heard when we were children back in our countries, those are precious, those are ancients, and they still make sense when they tell you yeah. to uh, not, when, when you eat, look at your food and see the ingredients in your food and cherish them. It means that you become one with your food. I've seen people who are trying to turn their back to their culture and uh, act right. otherwise, but then what happens is identity crisis. Because right, then the person right. would think, oh, what am I? Who am I? What am I? I am coming from the plain of Persia. I was born into a Persian family. And I started my journey, my exodus, when I was 26 years old. I brought with me a nice culture that is all about humanity and being kind to one another. Would you like to get to know my culture? I think there's only one answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's because no yeah. matter what, sooner or later, we're already do, doing it. We're bringing yeah. next to each other. All we need to do is to open the windows and allow yeah. each other to introduce ourselves and to get to know each other. We don't have to be friends. We don't have to be in love. But yeah. we have to live next to each other and we have to learn about each other. I asked Sora to describe the food of her childhood in pre-revolution Iran. Grandma didn't have, uh, you know, wasn't working outside. She didn't have lots of children. Uh, and uh, I was her favorite. Every time she get a chance or I get a chance, uh, she would come and take me and uh, take me to her house. And then the two of us had a yeah. blast together. Uh, my grandfather wasn't very much you know, in love with music. So we, we, oh, every morning we waited for him to leave. Soon as he left, we turned on the radio. I started, I would start dancing. <laughs> Grandma would start cooking. And it would take like three, four hours until the, uh, the lunch was ready at 12.30 p.m. Right. That lunch table, I've, I've not seen anything like that uh, ever since I left right. my birth country, Iran. Colorful, lots of details. It was just for the three of us, grandpa, grandma, and I, but it's still yeah. herbs, fresh herbs, because Iranians believe that having fresh herbs will help you digest your food. Fresh herbs, uh, those beautiful red radishes, thoroughly washed, turned into a flower next oh. on the side of the, of the plate, and then toshi, and then yogurt. Those two are the two ingredients that are must. They have to be on right, the right. table. Torshi, by the way, are traditional Iranian pickles, usually made in the fall. And then, obviously, yogurt with uh, cucumber, with um, like or yogurt with uh, with garlic, with small pieces of garlic in it. And uh, what else? Yes, um, a little bit of. Uh, Jam, because when you finish your food, you need something um, sweet right. to uh, change the taste of the of your palate. And uh, our stew was in a beautiful. It's interesting. I have to share this with you, Peter. When I first came here, when I first came here, a friend of mine who knew I was very much into culture and stuff said, "You have to visit Getty Museum." I said, "Museum? Let's let's go visit it." 
we go in and she points out to a beautiful plate, uh, Roman style. And she says, this plate is 80 years old. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, I'm not surprised because you're not surprised. I said, well, the place at my grandma's house were 80 years old. And we still plate out of them. So everything <laughs> is beautiful. Yeah. Like, it has to be uh, China and uh, it's uh, like beautiful roses. The one that is very famous in Iran is white with red roses on the mm. side of the plate. Right. Uh, and it has to be a set like the, where, you, the, where you put the stew and the, of course the dish for the rice and with all the silverware, napkins, uh, two glasses because if you want to have Water and at the same time have water and yogurt, which mixture of water and yogurt and fizzy water, which we call dubu, which is very custom. <laughs> I mean, so, how big is this table for all of these things for three people? <laughs> <laughs> Not very big, but yeah. pretty elaborate. Elaborate. Yeah. Very elaborate. Yeah. What were some of uh, the dishes that your grandma made that really stick out in your memory? Here's one that I still cook. And my American friends love it because it's sweet and sour. It is called Fesenjun. I love Fesenjun. Oh, it is, honestly, it is my single favorite Persian dish. I'm so excited you're talking. Okay, so please, go ahead. Don't let me interrupt you. Lisa, what's your sign? What is your sign? Is it a Taurus? I'm Sagitt- Sagittarius. Sagittarius, Taurus. <laughs> We're happy people. We're happy people. Yes. I have Fesenjun, which... Is a mixture of uh, chicken, uh, pomegranate sauce, uh, of course, and, and all the basics. And rather than using walnuts, I use almonds for fesenjun. Mm. Walnuts are, are a bit too heavy for me, so I, I yeah. rather use uh, walnuts. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Yeah. So, you're, so your, your grandma made an excellent fesenjun then? You could see the, I mean, it's not right to say that, but you could see the oil standing on it, like half a centimeter of oil on it. It was fun. (laughs) (laughs) Mine is not like that. Mine mine is not like that. Much more healthier. Mine is somewhere between my mother's and my grandma. (laughs) Now, bear in mind, this is Shoray talking about a regular old weekend meal with grandma. And by the way, the Persian weekend is Thursday and Friday, not Saturday and Sunday. But when it was time for Nowruz, the food went up yet another notch. The fish was decorated with flowers sometimes, and a beautiful, nice flower in his eye. And Uh. at his tail, you would see some nice vegetables turning around, making a... I mean, it was so elaborate and so beautiful. Again, with all the details, the Toshimas, this and that, and... uh, it was just, it's interesting. When you look at it, bef- you know, say it's before lunch and you're hungry. When you look at it, you're like, okay, I, I feel like I don't, <laughs> I'm full. It's, it, it, it nourishes your, your soul, your eyes. You're like, oh, I feel like I'm full. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Oh, that sounds wonderful. And yeah. was there any particular kind of music that you would listen to to celebrate the holiday? Um, mostly uh, the uh, contemporary music. 
yeah. uh, fun, happy uh, contemporary music that we could dance to. And no matter what, how, no matter how old you are, right after lunch, uh, they first they start with, you know, uh, telling, talking to each other, telling jokes to the, to the group, and and then they start dancing. No matter what, maybe oh. put a nice music and we start. <laughs> Now here, and unfortunately you can't see this, but Shora started dancing. And wow, she's got moves. <laughs> see, now this should be part of every meal. I think when you go to a restaurant and eat a meal, there should be a moment in which the waiter comes over and says, and now it is time to dance. <laughs> you get up and you dance. Pizza, pizza, actually, we could do this. Let's open up a restaurant. And right after you know they eat, we say, ladies and gentlemen, now time to dance. And everyone would dance. Oh, I mean, this is actually my dream is I want to do something where I am you should do recreating. It. Yeah. I mean, let's imagine if we could do a person feast like that. And then you had the music <laughs> yeah. come on and then people just dance. Oh, this would be this would be phenomenal. And it's good. And it, it, it would do them good because they would Absolutely. Them digest their food. And here, Shora busted out yet more dance moves. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we need to have a video of you on the wall dancing like that to inspire exactly, people. So yes. That will be, that will be the inspiration. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Nilu also spoke about the extravagant meals she remembered eating growing up in Iran. Friday is the day where all families get together. You will go to a kebab restaurant, maybe with extended family, or you will have people at home. And so... If you can imagine just every heaping platter of food, that is how Persians entertain. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic background. <laughs> the point is you always have a lot of people around your table. And um, it's not like a mm. you put one dish down and everyone eats that dish. You have five different kinds of rice. There's an herb rice and then there's a there's oh a goodness. there's a date rice and then there's a carrot rice. And then so everything is very colorful and then stews that are very slow cooked. And so they'll have things like uh, cumin or a lot of coriander, a lot of turmeric. Turmeric is very, very Persian and, uh, and saffron, but not heat spice. So we don't have a lot of um, that kind of burn your tongue kind of spice. So it's like Indian in that it's rice and stew, but it's not like that in that the flavor profile is much more um, delicate. Um, but we will, there'll be things with rose water and there's just a lot of, beautiful, fragrant foods, and then lots of slow-cooked meats. And of course, there's kebab. So there, everyone has something called, um, well, not everyone, but anyone who wants to grill meat has something called mangal. And mangal is basically a grill where you just put coals. So you put coals underneath, and then you skewer your meats. Uh, and, your, and so whether it's beef or lamb or chicken, and then you grill them directly on these beautiful, um, really fragrant coal and, um, and you fan it and it's very, it's the whole house, you know, of course it's outside, but you somehow it wafts in. And so you, you get that delicious smell. And then you take all of those, I mean, it's heaven. You take all of those skewers off, you wrap them in fresh bread from the bakery and you um, fold them over on top of that. And then the best bite that you get besides the tadig is the bread that's soaked up all the meat juice underneath. Um, and that bite uh. is the bite that we fight over sometimes um, at a party. Beyond the rice and the meat, there are two foods that are also stars of the show in Persian cuisine. 
We eat cucumber and eggplant like it's our full-time job. So there are more preparations of eggplant that I can think of. And that is definitely something that, especially when it's um, grilled and becomes really smoky, that's very much of a Persian Persian flavor profile. And I think I was talking to my husband and I said, what do you think I eat most of? And he's like, cucumbers. Persian cucumbers are so integral to um, Iranian life that we put them in our fruit plates. So when you, Iranians love to put out a fruit plate. So when you put out um, even like a big bowl, when you put out something dramatic with like that perfect thing of grapes and then all of the persimmons and then pomegranates, and we put cucumbers in that mix. And when someone you love comes to your house, you will sit after dinner and peel cucumbers for them. And that will be the thing that you put in front of them. You peel it and then you give it to them as, as a, as a, show of affection. Oh, I love that. A cucumber as a as a as a as an expression of love. So there's a great word in Farsi. I keep on te- I'm teaching an entire glossary, but um it's called lokme. Lokme is the bite that someone makes for you of the per- the perfect bite. If I know that I'm having a delicious combination of flavors of something that I've figured out like the herb is right and and the pickle is right and I'm just getting the perfect bite. I make that bite for my husband or my dad or my mom would make me a lorme. And so usually it's with bread and you kind of take a little piece of meat, a little piece of herb, a little bit of pickle, and you don't make it for yourself. You make it for somebody else that you love. That is so nice, right? Nilu spoke about the music vibes of her time in Tehran. It was the 70s. So if you imagine Pink Floyd, the wall playing out loud in the common areas of a school, people wearing bell bottoms, kids with crazy hair. I mean, I was little, I was in first grade, but Tehran was very cosmopolitan. I think you're talking about the cosmopolitan nature of Tehran in this time period. I feel like it's reflected in a lot of the music of the time too. And there's uh, a whole category of music that I've come to really enjoy, which is this uh, pre-revolution music from Tehran, artists like Gugush and and others. And um, I, I mean, and it's, it's amazing because it's, it's it's music that is really uniquely of Tehran from that time period. And I don't know, was that, was that, did you remember like hearing that kind of music at the time? Oh my gosh. I still, if I listen to Gugush, Dariush, Vigen, Satar, these are all, su- it's like listening. I mean, I, I feel the same way, same pangs of nostalgia for listening to 80s music in the U.S. So if I listen to Duran Duran, I'm like, swoon, you know, it reminds me, it brings me back. But for all of us, um, this music, it's interesting because it's a combination of kind of synthy, you know, there's a lot of synthesizer. The beat is really very different than European music. And then there's like this interesting element where they add like something like Dombak, which is, you know, the drum or, or, or Santur, which is like the the, the instrument they play with the mallets. So they'll add some very traditional Persian elements, which makes it even that, that nostalgia pang for Iranians is like, oh, it reminds me of olden times, but it's so modern. So these women, the Gugush is, is, a, is a woman and uh, she would sing. Uh, I just remember like in these like kind of like gowns and like it would just she would just kind of be like and he had blonde hair I mean no Iranians have blonde hair she had blonde hair and it was really the idea of also a woman being at the front of of a stage you know it was very very important we felt very like liberated 
I love, I find it absolutely infectious. And, and actually there's, there's, um, there's one song that has become kind of a nightly dance party for me and my kids that we listen to. It's a, uh, it's a Gugush song, uh, Manoto. Manoto, which means me and you. Manoto. There's like a canon of songs that gets, that get played at weddings, you know, and if, if you think about any culture that, you know, if you think about the Bollywood, you know, kind of Indian wedding, huge traditions, we don't have that, but we, we love to dance. And so there's like these songs that are from that era that always get played. One of them is actually my name, Nilufar. And so like anytime that song comes on, like everyone looks at me and they're like, now you must dance at the center of the room. <laughs> <laughs> because it, and I'm like, I'm not the only person with that name, but of course. And so, and you know, and we don't dance small. We dance real big. Like there's just a lot of motion. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of arms. There's a lot of hips. There's a lot of like eyebrow and there's just a lot of attitude. And so the, all of this music yeah. that you were talking about really lends itself to this like kind of hip swivel, sassy, I am Persian, hear me mm. roar. So I will equally put on Beyonce when I want to feel that kind of energy, yeah. or I'll put on old Persian music to kind of get me, get me in the mood. I asked Nilu if she had a wish for no ruse that she wanted to share with you, our dear listeners. I, my wish is that we don't lose hope. This has been a really difficult kick you in the teeth couple of years um, for a lot of different reasons. And it just keeps on coming. And I think that we all deserve to feel like there's better days ahead. And so hope to me is the thing that I want everyone to keep in their hearts. And my husband sometimes says that I'm kind of a Pollyanna, but uh I, I do think that dark days uh, need to be countered with light. And so I wish everybody lightness and, um, and joy and, I mean, all the things that Noruz is. To close things out, I asked my guests the standard issue counter jam question. If you were stranded on a deserted island and you could only eat one Persian dish for the rest of your life, what would it be? I could probably have guessed Shora's answer. Rice. <laughs> which of the 30 odd recipes of rice would you be eating <laughs> plain rice is my one of my favorites but um, if possible uh, I would appreciate uh, rice with saffron rice with uh, herbs rice with vegetables and rice with legumes mm, yes Those, which is very good for your hair nail and and I imagine you doing a lot of fancy pot flipping on your island with your rice. Oh, yes, of course, I have to. This is my island. I'm, I'm sure you've heard that you know, it's my birthday and I do whatever I like. So it's my island, it's my island yes. Nilu took a sneaky approach to the question. I, I'm going to cheat. Okay, I'm going to cheat. I would pick Obgusht which is not desert island food because it's quite hot. It's like a, it's like a stew with chickpeas and, and lamb. So abgusht is good because the next day you mash up the meat and the beans and you make it into a paste. And that is one of my favorite things to have for breakfast. It's like, you know, potato and meat mush, mush together. But 
You spread that on fresh barbari bread or sangak bread. You put some herbs on top. You put some pickle on top and you have it with hot tea. And I tell you, so when you go hiking in Tehran in the mountains, when you get to the top of your hike, that's what you um, can ask to get served. And with some hot tea, with some sugar, it is, I mean, it's pure magic. It's pure magic. I love that, Nilu. I love that. So, can I call you Nilu June, by the way? <laughs> okay, yes. So, you do we know? Does everyone know? June is dear. It also means um, uh, life. And so, when you say June to anyone, it means uh, it's a term of affection. That's what you call somebody when you feel a lot of love for them. Here's to feeling a lot of love for each other to celebrate no ruse. I wish you all a happy, peaceful Persian New Year, and I want to spin one last tune from Mitra Sumara. It's another Bandari-style jam, and it has some serious Nigerian funky vibes to it. I suggest you take a nod from Shore and shake your body to it. It's called Kofriam by Mitra Sumara. For tuning into Counterjam. If you dig the show, feel free to shoot us an email at hello at counterjam.com and leave a friendly review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to our guests, Shora Agdashlu, Nilo Motamid, and Yvette Masudi. I highly, highly recommend watching Shora's TV series, The Expanse. It is my single favorite TV show. Shout out to Yvette and Mitra Sumara for providing the funky soundtrack to this episode. Shout out to Food 52, Crutch Phrase Studio for the sound editing, and Counter Jam's producer, Harry Sultan, who makes the magic happen. I'm Peter J. Kim, and I'll catch you on the next episode of Counter Jam. Counter Jam.